Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. A reading from the book of Acts, starting in chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 8, verse 3. That's on page 1098 in the Church Bibles. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, For four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt in all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, The number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. 
He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man, man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea and for forty years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we, do know, we do, don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. It's good to see you all. Um, as Andy mentioned, my name's Will, and I'm on the staff team here, also involved with Children's Ethan Families Ministry, um, but also part of the church family. Thank you, Emma, for reading. It, w- it was a long passage, and it doesn't seem automatically obvious why Luke chooses to include this long speech from Stephen all about Old Testament history. But if you've ever questioned how anyone could claim that they truly know God amongst all the world religions, this passage has great insights. Or if you've ever wondered to yourself, how can I be confident that I can ever get to know God rightly when there seems to be so many different opinions? This passage has insights for us too. And if you've ever thought, how on earth in today's society can I seriously try to share my beliefs with others in a respectful way? when it seems so unacceptable to others, there's stuff for us here too, and there's lots of other things, but I'm limited by time. Um, So without further ado, let's set the scene for our passage. Stephen is the main focus, and he's a bit like Couscous. He's so good that he gets named twice. He's named firstly in chapter six, verse five, as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Then he's named a second time in our passage, in verse eight, as a man full of God's grace and power. Stephen was obviously a great man, and in the first half of chapter six, we saw that he was a Greek-speaking Jew who was given the duty of looking after um, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows who weren't getting the support that they needed. And as we look in our passage tonight here in verse eight, as Stephen went about his life, he also performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen wasn't an apostle, but under the teaching and love of the apostles, he was able to demonstrate God's power for the good of those around him. We find, though, that not everyone is a fan of Stephen. In verse 9, we read that opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen and that they began to argue with Stephen. 
They can't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit has given to Stephen, though. And so they persuade men to make accusations against him. Let's see the accusations in verse 11. We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Here lies the heart of the matter and the heart of where the rest of the passage will take us. Stephen's accusers call him a blasphemer. Their argument is that the things that Stephen proclaims go against the almighty God and against the foundational prophet of their faith, Moses. To blaspheme is to claim things about God that are not true. And it makes sense. If you're truly one of God's people, you don't blaspheme. You don't claim things about him that are not true and misrepresent him. And so here's the tension. Those accusing Stephen claim to be the true people of God and represent him rightly, whilst they say Stephen, a follower of Jesus, is not one of God's people. The question is, who's in and who's out? This question would have plagued the early readers of Acts. How can I know that I'm truly one of God's people? I don't do everything God's people used to do, and I follow Jesus, who they seem to hate. This is a particularly important question in this point in the book of Acts. Up to now in chapters 1 to 6, we've seen the apostles at work to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, the spiritual capital of Israel. And after Stephen's death, the focus is going to shift away in chapters 8 to 28 to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth with the gospel bearing fruit among many non-Jews. But is this legit? Who are truly God's people? Is it national Israel with their spiritual capital? Or is it the new worldwide church of followers of Jesus? The question can be one that we ask too. How can I be sure that I have really come to know God rightly? There seem to be, well, there are so many different religions. And lots of people seem to think that Christianity is way down on the list of the good ones. How can I be sure that I'm truly one of God's people Can I be sure that he'll hear me when I pray to him or welcome me into his presence when I die? How do I know that he's really there and that he looks favorably upon me? In our passage tonight, we see that those who are truly God's people humbly let God tell them who he is and the result is that they meet God God with confidence and they love others like him. Let me explain. Those who are truly God's people Humbly let God tell them who he is. The claim of the Bible is that God is the creator of all things and that he defines who he is and that he has revealed who he is in history. The claim is that he speaks and that we should listen. We could make up something about the creator, but if the creator has potentially revealed who he is in history, would it not make sense to have a listen? I could stand here and make some observations about your character by what I see, and I might get something right, but I'm not really in control of knowing you properly. For that to happen, you would have to want to tell me something about yourself in the first place, and then go ahead and tell me. You might be here, and you might be someone that doesn't think God exists, but if there's a chance he does, and that he offers to speak to you, would you have a listen? just to see if there might be anything to it. Our passage tonight addresses good and bad listening to a creator God. In chapter 6, verses 13 to 14, we read how the witnesses brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, who were, the, who were Israel's ruling council for religious affairs, to accuse him of being a blasphemer. 
This is what they say in verse 13. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So they accuse Stephen in two key areas. They talk about this holy place, referring to the temple in Jerusalem where God was believed to dwell among his people. They also talk about the law and about the customs Moses handed down to us. When they say that Stephen is wrong in these areas, it's because they're adamant that the true people of God need the temple in Jerusalem and that they must follow the law of Moses. They present Stephen as an outsider because as a follower of Jesus, he would have said that anyone could worship God independently of the temple in Jerusalem and that obedience to a law was not the means to have a relationship with God, but faith in Jesus was. So who was right? What defines the true people of God? They both had the same scriptures. Who had listened to God rightly though? Stephen is the one on trial, so he has to defend himself. And interestingly, he argues mostly from Genesis and Exodus, two of Moses' biggest books, parts of the law section of the Old Testament. See in chapter 7, verse 2, Stephen begins his defense by saying, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Stephen instantly puts a finger on their blind spot God is not limited to meeting with, with people in a temple in Jerusalem. He met with Abraham in Mesopotamia, which was a region way east of Israel, and home, in fact, to some of Israel's greatest enemies, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Then see verse 8. God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Throughout the Bible, we see God giving his people covenants. They're a promise from him of an ongoing relationship between him and his people. Stephen highlights this bit of Bible history because here was a foundational relationship with God that didn't involve obedience to the law of Moses, as the Sanhedrin crowd seemed obsessed with, but a relationship that involved trust in God's promises. And Stephen pushes his points further as he begins to talk about Abraham's descendants, and particularly about Joseph in verses 9 to 19. Joseph and his brothers were so core to the identity of the Jewish faith, yet they all spent a significant portion of their lives in Egypt and died in Egypt, where Joseph had become a ruler of that nation. See in verse 9, it says, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. God was with him in Egypt. Here and across the next 10 verses, Stephen repeats over and over that there were God's people, being his people not in Israel, but in Egypt. It's as though Stephen is trying to knock some sense into his accusers. They claim to have listened to God, but for them their obsession with temple worship in Jerusalem had made them completely forget God's dealings with his people elsewhere. It would be like a child looking for the family car at an old address because that was where the car once used to get parked on the drive there. But the child has become so focused on the car parked on the drive there that they've forgotten all the other places that the car has been parked and all the other old addresses in which the car lived on the drive there. Stephen is gently letting God's word expose the blind spots of his accusers. But it's worth pointing out 
as well, in this section of the speech, Stephen isn't only highlighting wrong thinking from his opponents, he's also demonstrating his common heritage with them. He refers to them as brothers and fathers, and he refers to Abraham and sons as our ancestors. Here's a good model for our conversations with those we disagree with. It's always good to find common ground and areas of shared understanding so that we can each see where each other might be coming from with their different viewpoints. Stephen then goes on to spend some time talking about Moses, one of the other key areas where the freed men had accused him of blaspheming. They felt he had dishonored God by proclaiming Jesus as Messiah when they saw Jesus as a threat to their understanding of Moses' law. I won't go into detail now, but across verses 20 to 38, Stephen is demonstrating that he really does see Moses as worthy of respect because he was a man authorized by God. However, Stephen is also aware that in the past, God's people had not listened to Moses and instead rejected him rejecting God in the process and turning to idols. See Stephen picking this up in verse 39. Our ancestors refused to obey Moses. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. God's people didn't want to listen to Moses. They rejected him and refused to obey him. Stephen sees in God's word a long, sad tradition of bad listening to God speak. He also sees that that tradition, that tradition results in turning back to Egypt, so to speak, turning back from the way of living they had before God met with them and spoke to them. And here Stephen's Bible overview is beginning to uncover a problem humans have had all throughout history. God raises up people to reveal who he is to others by using them, um, sorry, using them uh, to speak his words, raising up people uh, to reveal who he is, using them to speak his words. However, time and time again, we naturally want to reject God's prophets. We tend to push back against an authoritative word from God and prefer to make a God that fits our own ideas about what God should be like. The Israelites did exactly that when they rejected Moses and his words, choosing instead to set up a golden calf to worship. Instead of listening to God and becoming like him, we would, without God's spirit, choose idols to worship and become like them, ugly and useless. Stephen knew that he was from a family of faith that had shown consistent failure in this area, and he's concerned for this family of opponents that they too will fail to listen to God rightly and instead become idolaters. And in the final part of his overview, Stephen uncovers one more big mistake the Sanhedrin crowd had made. They felt that the temple was the irreplaceable location where God made himself present. But in saying that, they had made God out to be very small. They were living in half-truth because, again, they had failed to listen to God and let him define himself to them. Stephen agrees that, yes, God dwelt among his people He outlines this, see, in verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Stephen sees that the tabernacle, a place for God to dwell amongst his people, was ordained by God, and it was made rightly. 
And we read in the verses after that it remained with God's people and eventually became the more permanent temple building built by Solomon in Jerusalem. But Stephen again highlights a blind spot for the Sanhedrin crowd. Whilst God had made himself present among his people in the temple, he could never actually be contained in that one spot. God had spoken through the prophet Amos to make this clear to them. See verse 49, which quotes Amos chapter 5. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God cannot be contained by what he has created. He's the creator of all things. To suggest that God must remain in the temple in Jerusalem was to make God very small and to fail to listen to God speak. God is not contained within man-made institutions. God will be where God will be. Perhaps the Sanhedrin liked the idea that God was specially present in their land and he had to be met in their country. In this way, they could easily define those who were in and those who were out. Meet God in Israel and follow Moses' law and you're in. Outside of Israel and outside of our teaching on Moses and you're out. Stephen is establishing all this Bible history to turn the table on his accusers. They say that Stephen has rejected Moses, but really they have rejected Moses, just like those in history before them. And they miss the fact that God was not limited to the temple or to the law of Moses. God had established a relationship with people before the temple and before the law. And the law and the temple were only ever meant to point to something else. Have a look at verse 37. Moses told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. If the Sanhedrin crowd were truly God's people listening to him, they would have realized that Jesus was the prophet like Moses, that God had raised up. And see verse 55 too. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Heaven is God's throne. If the Sanhedrin crowd were truly God's people listening to him, they would have realized that Jesus was the true temple of God, the true holy place where anyone could meet God. They would have seen, been able to see all throughout the scriptures that God intended for his people to bless the world, not try to constrain him and his blessing to their own nation. So what does all this have to say to us today? Well, firstly, I think we're on really dangerous ground if we try to restrict who can meet with God and how using boundaries that are not from God. The Sanhedrin crowd had become proud of their attendance in the temple and their following of the minutiae of Moses' law, yet they had serious blind spots and were in fact doing God a disservice. Their response to anyone who differed from their narrow theology was to accuse them falsely and in the end, to batter them. What a warning for anyone associated with religion. You may be part of an institution that said it loves God and is passionate about his word, and we'll see in a moment that it, it is good to have confidence that we can know God rightly. But are we humble? If someone questions what we say, do we listen to them and talk through their thoughts? Or do we shut down the conversation instantly and dismiss them as wrong or dangerous? 
I wonder if a danger for us is that we become so happy with being orthodox on some issues that we let pride sneak in by the back door unchecked. I remember not long after becoming a Christian at university being introduced to a Roman Catholic at a Christian Union event. I'd grown up in the Roman Catholic Church and so someone thought it would be a good idea for me to chat to this person. I remember going up to this girl and basically setting out to tell her everything I thought was wrong with Roman Catholicism and how much better it was to be an evangelical. No listening to her perspective on things. No finding common ground. No attempt to reflect on God's word together. Understandably, she didn't appreciate my chat and may never have gone back to the Christian Union, for all I know. Somehow, coming to a newfound understanding of grace had led me to be ungracious and proud. I'm not saying that being God's people is all about agreeing with everyone and never seeking to persuade someone that what we believe is true, but what defines us as being God's true people is that we listen to God's word and put our faith in Jesus, and that should make us humble and patient with others, not proud and dismissive. God is not defined by his followers. God defines for himself who he is and how his true people will relate to him. Most of all, we must listen to God humbly. If we fail to listen, we will idolize the institutions that we have made rather than worshiping the true God. So if we want to be God's people and we are confident that we are, we will want to avoid this kind of pride. But to avoid pride, should we abandon any kind of confidence in knowing God rightly? No. Those who are truly God's people meet him confidently. It's true, there seem to be so many different voices that tell us what God is like and how we should live in response to him. How on earth do we know who's right? And I've been arguing that God cannot be defined by humans, so how can we even try to know him? Well, God can't be defined by humans, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't make himself clear and available to be known. Stephen had repeated this throughout his Bible overview, that God has been consistently making himself known to people. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. God said, and afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Moses received living words to pass on to us. I'll just say here that all these examples are from the Old Testament. God has revealed so much of who he is and what it means to be his people through the Old Testament. What a great thing if you're coming on house party next week where we're going to spend a whole week looking at the book of Exodus. Or if you're a student or you go to 20s and 30s, it will be hearing from Exodus for a whole year in small groups come September. What a chance to listen humbly to God and let him show us who he is. Throughout history, God has been making himself known to people all over the world. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God And then we read in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus, the Son of God, was the prophet like Moses who was raised up to bring the fullest and clearest possible revelation of who God is. God has spoken clearly through his Son, the Righteous One. 
And this is what gives us confidence to meet with God. We're given ample reason to trust Jesus and the words he spoke, not least because in his resurrection he has shown himself to be God and therefore to be one who speaks truthfully. In his speaking and in his living, witnessed and recorded by the apostles, he has shown us who God is and how we are to meet with him. God, being a God who speaks, gives us confidence that he is available to be known and that he wants a relationship with us. And God sending a living, breathing, speaking word into our world, into observable history, gives us confidence that we really have heard from him rightly. And we can also have confidence that we can meet with him as his true people. This would have given the early readers of Acts great confidence as they faced accusations from non-Christian Jews. A Gentile Christian may have been viewed as an outsider and unwelcome at the temple in Jerusalem, and they may have known nothing of the law of Moses, but through faith in Jesus, that man or woman could confidently say that they had met with the true God because they had heard him speak clearly through his son and received the Holy Spirit. And this is true for us today. God has made himself available to you and me. We can take great confidence that the word of God still speaks. And if you're listening to God, don't let anyone discount you from meeting him. We've seen in the passage two reasons why the Sanhedrin crowd discounted Stephen. The Sanhedrin crowd discounted Stephen firstly because of his opinions about the temple. But the temple in Jerusalem was only ever pointing to Jesus, the true temple of God. Be wary of anyone who discounts you because you haven't come from a Christian background or because you come from a different Christian background to the one you find yourself in now. There is no man-made institution that makes you in the right place to meet with God. You are not discounted. God invites you to meet with him and listen to his word so that you can know him and be one of his people. The Sanhedrin crowd discounted Stephen because of, secondly because of his opinions about the law. But the law only ever pointed forward to the one who would fulfill it. You may not have lived rightly in the past 24 hours, the past week, the past years. You are not discounted. God invites you to meet him, not through obedience to a law, but through his love and forgiveness offered in his son who gave himself for your sins to rescue you. The true people of God can meet with him confidently. And finally, those who are truly God's people love others like him. Pride and self-righteousness meant that the Sanhedrin crowd were hateful and deceitful. Having set up a court with false witnesses, they then finished the court session with murder. See verse 57. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. It's a terrible scene. They thought that they had the claim to be the one who were exclusively God's people, yet they didn't resemble him one bit. They resembled a lying and murdering beast. This is what happens when our sin is left unchecked by the living and active word of God, which confronts us and shows us a better way. Stephen, on the other hand, had listened to that voice. He had been confronted and changed and brought to humble worship of the true God. As a result, he acts with great calmness and charity towards the Sanhedrin crowd. His confidence is not in himself, but in Jesus and in his word. 
And so he's not afraid to speak bold words with confidence. And see verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Because he had been humbled by God's word and given confidence in Jesus, Stephen had become able to love others like the God who he had come to know. Just like Jesus, he could face death with confidence, knowing he had a father in heaven, ready and waiting to receive him. And just like Jesus dying on the cross, Stephen could bless even those who were killing him and ask that they might receive mercy. And the impact of Stephen's life and death echoes through the rest of the book of Acts. In chapter 8, verse 1, we read, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Here's a turning point for the early church. Christians are propelled out from Jerusalem with the good news in their hearts, and the words of Jesus from chapter 1, verse 8 begin to be fulfilled. He said his followers would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we find that God uses the life and death of Stephen to exactly these ends. In chapter 11, verse 19, we read that those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Stephen's legacy was that his life and death had brought about the spread of the gospel message which would transform lives around the world. Because Stephen had humbly listened to God and confidently met with him, he was able to make an amazingly positive impact on the world. Because of his death, the word of God spread across the world amongst Gentiles to the point where those same words are available to you and me today. And with these words, listening humbly to God and meeting with him confidently, we can love others in Jesus' name and make a positive impact on our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, (coughs) heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. You are far greater um, than all we can uh, imagine, but we thank you so much that you have also drawn near to us uh, to speak to us Uh, through your prophets long ago, and most clearly through your son. And I thank you that you invite us to meet with you, and that you call us into a relationship with you, and you change us so that we might love others like you. Amen.